Hello and welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna, listener-supported public radio over the central Kenai Peninsula. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. We've got a lot of great stuff for you this month, but as always, first up, it's beer news. On July 12th, Japanese brewing giant Sapporo announced they were shutting down San Francisco's Anchor Brewing Company, which has roots in the California Gold Rush era. I will talk much more about this later in the show. Tickets for the Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival are now on sale. This year's festival will be on Saturday, August 12th at the Soldatna Sports Center. The festival is produced by the Soldatna Rotary, and all proceeds go to charity. I'll have an interview with organizer Matt Pahala later in the show. I was recently the guest on the Brewery Travels podcast to talk about, you guessed it, beer in Alaska. Episode 83 is available on the Soda Pod, that's S-O-T-A, if you'd care to take a listen. On July 6th, Alaska's Alcohol Board voted unanimously to approve a regulation that allows brewery, distillery, and winery tap rooms to open temporary outdoor seating spaces during the summer. The move follows a separate vote in May that allowed licensed businesses to serve alcohol in outdoor seating areas that weren't directly adjacent to the licensee. Both changes were requested by the alcohol industry and unopposed by harm reduction groups, but they're unlikely to deliver results this summer. Despite the hopes of business owners, the slow pace of regulatory approval and a possible flaw with the May regulations means Alaskans are unlikely to see changes until next summer. Under state law, new regulations don't go into effect until 30 days after they're signed by the lieutenant governor, which means Thursday's new regulation wouldn't be binding until August at the earliest. It's almost certain to be later than that because the Alaska Department of Law reviews all regulations before they go to the governor's office. Odds are Alaskans won't be able to enjoy the new rules before the snow flies this year. 49th State Brewing Denali Park will be holding its annual Oktoberfest at the pub in Healy on Saturday, August 12th, starting at 11 a.m. The all-day Oktoberfest-style celebration includes a German food menu and special beer releases by the one-liter Stein in true Oktoberfest style. Live music in the evening will include Alaska Blaskapel, Matt Hopper and the Roman Candles, and Blackwater Railroad. Tickets are $20 and available online. 49th State Brewing in Anchorage has also announced that in the next few weeks, it will open a pub on Concourse C of the South Terminal at Ted Stevens International Airport. The pub will feature both pre- and post-TSA sections, as well as a gift shop and a grab-and-go kiosk. The menu will feature a mix of exquisite new dishes designed to be enjoyed on the go and classic 49th State pub favorites, including delicacies that highlight local, sustainably sourced Alaskan ingredients. There will also be plenty of vegan and vegetarian menu items, along with a first for 49th State, breakfast. The pub's centerpiece will be the 76-foot-long, 30-seat, copper-topped bar. There will be full bar service, including 20 taps for 49th State beers, 
Arctic Root Cider crafted with Alaska apples, and non-alcoholic Frontier Soda. The Juno Rotary will be holding its annual Capital Brew Fest on Saturday, September 30th, outdoors at the subport near the Coast Guard Station in downtown Juneau. Tickets are available online. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we'll have an interview with Matt Pahala, the organizer of the Kenai Peninsula Beer Fest. Driveway moment. When you're stuck in your car because what you're hearing is too interesting to leave. Those are the stories we bring you on the KDLL Evening Newscast, getting you to pause wherever you tune in. Listen every weekday at 5.20 p.m. Matt Pahala of the Soldatna Rotary, the brains behind the Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival that's coming up next month. Matt, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm really good, Bill. We finally have some sunny days here in the Central Peninsula, so no complaints. Yeah, well, I know you guys have like the uh, the in line to the weather god, so I'm uh, really looking forward to good weather on the 12th. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. We've uh, In all the years of the Beer Fest, I think that we've only had about two festivals where it was poor weather. So I'm knocking on wood that we, uh, we, we keep that streak going. I hear you. And I'm hoping for it as well. So this year's beer festival, like I said, it's on the 12th. Uh, it starts at five o'clock for the VIP session, six o'clock for everybody else. Who's coming in this year brewery wise? You know, one of the things about managing something like a beer fest is farming out some of the work to uh, to the committee. So we've got uh, one of our committee members that's really been taking on the uh, the hounding of the breweries during this busy season to see who who is uh, who's coming and who's not. But you know, I know for sure that our our usual suspects, of course. Uh, all of our local breweries here from the Kenai Peninsula uh, are, are going to be there. That are usually there, and we, you know, we get Broken Tooth and Midnight Sun and uh, Madanuska and King Street. You know, some of the other usual suspects from from Anchorage. But uh, to be real honest, I I need to get with my uh, my guy on the committee to get the final list so that I can uh, can update you fully. But I know that uh, we'll be posting on the Facebook page uh, several of the confirmed brewers. Some of them, you know, especially the smaller guys, they uh, sort of wait until the last minute to fully commit to see if they even have beer that they can, uh, that they can bring with how the tourist season goes. That's a big concern for some people is uh, if they just, like you say, to make sure they've got enough beer so that they can come and pour for everybody and uh, not uh, not run out. So, um, so in addition to that, how about your uh, the entertainment that you've got scheduled? Do you want to tell everybody about that? Yeah, we're really excited. We've got we're going with local bands this year, and uh, we're going to be opened up by Ellie and the Echoes. Uh, they're a real fun band that's been coming on strong here this year. And then uh, our headliner that's going to close us out is the Riverfront Gang. And so some usual suspects there, too. So um, should be a lot of fun. I know both those groups have uh, got quite a following, it seems like, especially over the last several months. They've been doing shows around the peninsula and uh, just, yeah, a lot of fun and trying to keep it more local this year and, and give our uh, some exposure to some of the local talent. So, 
And I know yeah. you're going to have uh, lots of food trucks, right? All the usual suspects there for that. Yeah, yeah, should be. Um, I, I think, you know, what we've decided with the food trucks, we don't, it, since it is a small, smaller event, you know, compared to some of the others and, um, and a short time period, we're not going to have a ton of food trucks there. But I think we I think we maxed out at six. And uh, yeah, a good variety too. I think some options for people that are looking for something other than just the the deep fried. And yeah, we're pretty excited about that. You know, it, it's funny because it's become one of those events that uh, for for food trucks, especially with so many of them around, we get we start getting calls around January uh, to see if they can get on the list and be be at the event so we get uh we get a good choice of of who who gets selected and um we've got we've got a real good uh good turnout there well the reason that the uh rotary sponsors this in the first place is that you're going to use uh the money that you raise to uh support some of your rotary projects so why don't you tell us about where the proceeds from the uh fest go and what sort of projects it's supporting yeah, I mean that's one of the things with the Soldatna Rotary Club is we're a busy club. We have a lot of local projects that uh, that this money goes towards. Uh, there's a, a large portion of it will go to help support and further the project of the uh, the Kenai Peninsula Peace Crane Garden Trail. That's the Japanese garden located on Marydale, just past the uh, Sohai. And uh, if you haven't been out to visit that that spot, it is it's a it's a really neat place, and um, got some really really high quality trails established, and uh, hopefully with some of the proceeds we can just uh, build that infrastructure out a little bit more. I know we we hope to get a entrance gate placed and and uh, a Tory gate behind that. So uh, so that's really cool. And then we always support things like the food bank and um, we, there's a, a, a fund that's basically a transportation fund for those who uh, need some help getting to and from hospital visits. Uh, that's administered through the, uh, the Peninsula Foundation, but those that's a, a fund that was set up in honor of Fred Chambers, the uh, the founder of uh, Soldatna Rotary. So, um, yeah, just just some real important things there, and a lot of other smaller projects that the money ends up going to. But I'd say those are are some of the bigger ones. Well, let's talk uh, specifics a little bit again for people that uh, might be interested in attending if they haven't attended in the past. Why don't you? Uh, Kind of tell tell how it's set up and where they could go about getting tickets and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So getting getting tickets is really easy. Uh, KeniBeerFest.com. Uh, go there and there's a get tickets button. Just hit that and it takes you right to the site. Uh, pretty pretty straightforward there. I believe you can either print out your ticket or you can have uh, the the code on or the the barcode on your phone and connoisseur hour like you said starts at five goes from five to six that is limited to 200 entrants so uh that's more for the person that might want to take a little bit of time and uh chat up the brewers and and um get a little more information and it's a little bit of an easy entrance into the uh into the festival 
Um, real good, real good time there for any you know homebrewers looking for some tips or just someone that likes to bend the ear a little bit. But uh, general admission that'll start at six, goes from six to nine. The connoisseur tickets, those are going for seventy-five. The general admission's fifty. So uh, with that, with the general admission, you well with both of them, you get a, a commemorative glass, and then uh, for the connoisseur hour it's it's open tasting and then once the general admission uh time starts then uh you get the uh eight tokens for the eight eight different samples that you start out with if you want to sample some more then you can purchase more sample tokens uh from the from the uh merchandise counter um other than that, let's see. There's, uh, like, like you said, there's food on site. Uh, we always encourage people to not drink and drive. So we, we usually get a pretty good uh, relationship with Alaska Cab. We've got cabs coming through, and, and we can call you a cab because uh, we want everyone to get home safe. It is a, a tasting and everything, but we definitely want people to have that as the main priority is getting home safe so and you'll be doing the uh, people's choice awards again this year yeah we are so uh people's choice brewery and people's choice beer and last year we we changed over from doing a paper ballot to doing an electronic uh voting and uh which is basically qr codes and uh, it was that went really easy because there was a lot less a uh, lot less counting uh, and uh, no no hanging chads or anything like that. So uh, it was real clear and basically made it a lot easier for on us as the committee to get that tally done in a timely manner. So that was good. We're we've got a, a local artisan who's doing another metal uh metal work for the People's Choice Awards. They turned out really nice last year and uh we're we're just going with that again. So again it's something that can uh help with a local economy. Like we're we're using a, a local artisan to produce that. And you know if you look at our posters around town uh those were also done by a by a local graphic artist. So it's really about uh, highlighting some of the things that we have in the community, not just uh, not just beer. So. Yeah, I just happened to see one of the posters yesterday, and uh, I think they look really great this year. So very yeah, yeah, kudos. I'm happy with it. It's a little bit different from some of the posters mm-hmm. we've had in the past, and it catches your eye. I love it. Yeah, they look really nice. So, okay, well, that uh, that's going to be the Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival on Saturday, August twelfth, uh, two weeks from when this is going to be on the air. All you local beer lovers out there, make sure you've. Uh, Mark that on your calendar and get your tickets before they sell out, as I, I know there have been times in the past when they have. So uh, get yourself your ticket and come and check out the Kenai Peninsula Beer Festival. Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you so much for all the hard work that you guys put into putting this beer festival on for all of us. Yeah, anytime, Bill, and I hope to see you there. I'll be there. Hello, this is John Jackson host and producer of Deeper Cuts Radio. Deeper Cuts features an artist, band, or topic. We play great music not often heard, mixing and mingling genre and era, creating a unique playlist for your listening pleasure. 
Tune in Fridays at 9 p.m. on KDLL 91.9 FM in beautiful Kenai, Alaska. Enjoy. This month's feature is about the end of Anchor Brewing. Only four months back in March, I broadcast a feature story about Fritz Maytag and the role he played in jumpstarting the modern American craft beer revolution by saving the Anchor Brewing Company in San Francisco. In business since 1896, Anchor was on its last legs in 1968 when Maytag bought it and turned it into a successful craft brewery. I talked about how, by both example and advice, he inspired and assisted many craft beer pioneers, including Alaskan Brewing's Jeff Larson. In closing, I said that he had truly earned his nickname, the godfather of American craft beer. So you can imagine how I felt when the news broke on July 12th that Sapporo, the Japanese brewing giant that currently owns Anchor Brewing, was shutting it down immediately and permanently. Maytag sold the brewery in 2010 to an investment group specializing in alcohol brands, which subsequently sold it to Sapporo in 2017 for $85 million. Sapporo announced its decision with a 2 a.m. press release that cited rising costs, pandemic challenges, and sliding sales. This sudden closure was on the heels of a previous announcement last month that Anchor was ending production of its iconic Christmas ale and scaling back its distribution to California only. Unmentioned among the press release's list of factors precipitating Anchor's demise was Sapporo USA. The stateside subsidiary of the Japanese conglomerate that acquired Anchor in 2017 isn't named once in the early morning statement, but workers say it should be. After all, as far as they're concerned, the parent company ran America's first craft brewery into the ground. Insiders tell a tale that's not an unfamiliar one. A corporate giant purchases a successful craft brewery, but has no understanding of what made it successful or how to keep it that way. Eventually, culture clashes and managerial missteps lead to the demise of the goose that used to lay golden eggs. The first misstep by Sapporo USA was likely buying Anchor in the first place. The corporation seemed to think that Anchor's historic brew house would somehow be able to produce its Sapporo lager, despite being famous for brewing ales using only open fermentation, a system wholly incompatible with lager production. It seems inconceivable that Sapporo didn't realize this going in, but apparently the corporate managers didn't understand the fundamentals of brewing. From this initial error flowed many others. Execs postponed necessary plant maintenance, fought workers' successful union drive in 2019, and stalled on the follow-up and eventually successful contract negotiations this year, and demonstrated an extremely novice grasp of Anchor's brewing cycle, disrupting production schedules. Sapporo USA also invested in costly automated equipment in hopes of modernizing the urban manufacturing landmark, something workers agreed was desperately needed. It didn't go well. At first, Anchor's workers were excited by the prospect of the labor-saving devices, viewing them as an opportunity to develop new skills and upgrade the aging brew house, which produced approximately 65,000 barrels of beer in 2022. 
But the commissioning process dragged out over half a year with the new bottling line ripping bolts out of the concrete floor because it wasn't installed correctly, which led to additional delays for it to be fixed again. Production dropped from 500 barrels a day to around 200. Of course, Sapporo's Singus biggest mistake was its rebranding in January 2021, a self-inflicted disaster of new Coke proportions. The brewery rolled out a new look for Anchor's packaging and logo, apparently designed to bolster the brand's since-discarded national sales strategy. It was a Technicolor disaster. Potential customers threw a fit on social media and begged for the return of the iconic labels and packaging that the beer had sported for decades. With morale flagging, turnover at the brewery, once a place that instilled fierce loyalty in workers who'd stay on for decades, increased dramatically with Sapporo in control. On the floors above the brew house, employees began to leave their white collar roles and were never replaced. And whether pulling Anchor's national distribution back to California only was a good idea, it had to happen because the brewery's entire national sales staff had apparently been laid off by that point. If rebranding Anchor was Sapporo's most unpopular decision, its most fateful one for the San Francisco brewery may have been its acquisition of San Diego's Stone Brewing Company about a year ago. With its more modern brewery, Stone could brew Sapporo, something Anchor couldn't. Brewbound magazine reported in April that despite Sapporo's claims to the contrary, they were providing the money to fund an expansion of Stone's Richmond, Virginia brewery, while workers in San Francisco bargained for livable wages. After five years of disappointment and embarrassment trying to run a brewery they never seemed to understand, it seems that Stone Brewing, what with its culture of bravado and enormous more modern facilities, was gleaming pretty bright in Sapporo USA's executives' eyes by then. Since the news broke, there have been several efforts to somehow save Anchor, including a proposal from its employees to purchase the brewery and operate it as a workers' co-op. Reports are that over two dozen other investors and individuals have expressed interest in acquiring some or all of the brewery, but time is running out as the brewery is scheduled to be liquidated in August. So what lessons can we as craft beer lovers take away from all this? Lesson number one, nothing is sacred. If a craft brewing icon like Anchor Brewing can be run into the ground and sold for scrap, then any brewery out there is potentially at risk. Post-pandemic, it's Darwin days in the brewing game, strictly survival of the fittest. From a consumer's point of view, be sure to support the breweries out there you really care about, lest they vanish from the scene. Lesson number two, managerial culture and skill is critically important in creating and maintaining a successful craft brewery. The reason companies like AB InBev and Sapporo buy craft breweries instead of growing their own is simple. They can't grow their own. In fact, they have a hard time not killing a successful brewery that they acquire as a going concern. The mindset of a big corporation simply doesn't translate well into the relatively small-scale sphere of craft brewing. Some brewing giants have had the good sense to remain hands-off after purchasing iconic craft breweries. Sapporo's Japanese rival Asahi 
purchased Fuller's Brewery in the UK in 2019 and has earned near universal praise for its respectful approach to the landmark British brewery. Contrast that with what has happened to those craft breweries like Goose Island, Ballast Point, and others who fell into less discerning hands. Lesson number three, when all is said and done, brewing beer is a business. I can wax lyrical here on the radio about the amazing history of beer and its incredible cultural importance, but then again, I have no skin in the game. For those who do, folks like Zach Henry at St. Elias Brewing or Doug Hogue at Kenai River, it inevitably comes down to the bottom line. A craft brewery has to make money, no matter how storied it's past. You can brew some of the most unique and amazing beers in the world, steeped in decades of tradition, representing the pinnacle of the brewer's art. But if you can't get enough folks to pony up their money for what you're producing, sooner or later, you're going to go down. Case in point, Anchor Brewing. Up next, we'll have an interview with David Thomas from Chilkoot Distillery in Haines. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Not all news can be contained in a soundbite or two. That's why every week we're bringing you hour-long interviews on the Kenai Conversation. Every Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL. David, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. So, for folks that aren't familiar with Port Chilkoot, why don't you tell them a little bit about it and your operation there and everything? Yeah, we're a small uh, distillery in Haines, Alaska, kind of on the northern end of Lynn Canal, uh, basically the north end of southeast Alaska, the Panhandle. And uh, we've been in business for 11 years or so now. And um, yeah, it's been going strong. We keep growing every year. Uh, we do primarily um, a selection of six different spirits. Uh, we do gin, vodka, uh, locally sourced absinthe. And then we do a series of barreled spirits, uh, rum, bourbon, rye, and we have a special, uh, special release whiskey every spring called the Old School Whiskey. What's your production look like? What do you, you know, what do you have for stills and all that kind of good stuff? Stuff here is about 322 gallons. Uh, we, we're a batch distillery, so we're not continuous distillation. Uh, so we just go through each batch on its own through, this, through the process. Um, and then we have a 275-gallon spirit still. Um, so that's a five-plate still. And, uh, yeah, we produce... Mostly um, our whiskeys in the fall, and we probably produce about three cooks a week, I would say. What does your total production look like in barrels annual? Uh, for, yeah, for whiskey, uh, for bourbon, we're producing about, about 30, 30 barrels of bourbon a year, and then we do about... 15 barrels of rye, and probably 20 barrels of, of rum. And then I would assume significantly more vodka and gin. And yeah, we, does we it produce barrel aging. Yeah, we produce significantly more of that. Our number one product is the gin. That's won a whole bunch of awards, and that's kind of, you know, when, we, when we're shipping out to our distributor, that's the bulk of the 
of the shipment. And I know your stuff has won uh, quite a few awards. I know the the uh, the fifty fathoms gin won one. What else? I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, it's uh, about five. It's won about five medals. It actually won over Hendrix in two thousand. Can't remember what it was. Two thousand fifteen. Um, yeah, it's a it's a great gin. I, I think it's I like its drinkability, approachability. It's uh, got some local spruce tips in there, so it has a real kind of local flavor to it um and I've, it's just one of those ones that everybody that says oh i'm not into gin they try that one and it's just uh you know they just it's really approachable good good so what's your background how did you end up as production manager in haynes uh yeah i was in coffee roasting is actually primarily the most of my career i was a, a coffee roaster for 15 years um and that's where that's most of my experience there uh transferred a lot of that kind of the you know using an agricultural product and and manipulating it to reach an end product um all the chemistry involved in that uh and then brought it over to here as well as all the you know raw material sourcing and things like that um but that's primarily my my history is in coffee roasting as well as i did a a lot of bartending and bar managing before that. Okay. So uh, what's your what's the uh, scale of your operation these days? The last time I visited, you guys were still all in the, uh, the old historic uh, bakery there at Fort Seward. Yeah. Have you expanded out from that or are you still? Is yeah, that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we've we've expanded quite a bit from the original bakery building that um that you probably visited before uh so now the bakery building is just entirely our tasting room and we have an entirely new building that's probably three times the size um next door and uh, that's our production facility and the production facility is um was finished in 2019 and then once 2019 it was all finished and then COVID hit so we've been mm -hmm. kind of stumbling through that for a little while but uh this year i think we we were actually right back into that kind of main production speed and everything like that so if people are looking to find your products i know for example here locally country liquors sells them who's your uh, distributor in state and where can they find it yeah, yeah, we, we use Specialty Imports as our distributor, and uh, they're great. They they're really good as far as you know working with you. Uh, they're really into the products that they sell, so they they've been really involved in our growth. Um, but they they're our main distributor, so they go all over Alaska. So you should be able to find our products in in most liquor stores all around the state. Okay, that sounds good. So do you guys have any plans to take advantage of the change to the liquor laws that's coming in in the uh, you know, 1st of January? Is that going to allow you to modify your operations in any fashion? Uh, yeah, well, it's, I mean, Heather was actually pretty involved in getting tasting rooms legalized uh, originally when she was first getting going. So she's been involved in that for a long time. Um, and now that we use our tasting room as as a way of kind of introducing people to our spirits um the laws as far as i know changes that are going to happen that might affect us most is the is the hours of operation we have 
cruise ships that come in uh, to Haynes. And actually this summer, we've noticed even more and more uh, kind of a trend towards ships coming in later. Uh, sometimes where they land right before, literally right before we close. So it, it will affect us in that sense. Uh, but otherwise, we, it won't hugely affect our operations. We, the tasting room is, is kind of, you know, how our, we introduce our spirits and kind of like this lifestyle to people. But we also, you know, as we, as you know, we use specialty. So we focus a lot on that wholesale export side of the business. So you mentioned you've got a new spirit that you're getting ready to release. You might have heard me mention the uh, old school whiskey, which is old uh, something we, yeah, yeah. So we do that every spring. That's actually a triple distilled whiskey uh, that we release it during the hooligan run. So that's why it has the uh, the, the on the label. There's a kind of a school of fish on the label there. But we limit it. We release it every spring. It's kind of the the tales from both the bourbon and the rye production that we then redistill to kind of get a cleaner kind of more flavorful um whiskey that's kind of all its own and we then we age that for three years in um the bourbon barrels the used bourbon barrels and it comes out just every every you know every release is a little bit different and that's kind of a fun uh, fun way for people to get introduced to our whiskey that one you're using the used barrels and you put the bourbon and the rye into new wood? Yeah, because the bourbon and rye legally have to go right. into the new, new barrels. So, yeah, the, so we have all these extra barrels. <laughs> We're right. always looking for things to use them for. Uh, we use we use them for the rum, obviously, the uh, used barrels we use for the rum, and then we also use it for the old school. I would assume sourcing that in those new barrels is, a, is pretty spendy in Haynes. Yeah, and it's also a really tight market. I mean, there's just barrels are really, really hard to come by. And we have a pretty good relationship with Kelvin Cooperage in uh, Kentucky. So that was, that's, we've had a really consistent supply of barrels, but it is a really, they're two, they're two years out from any production. You kind of have to know them already <laughs> to yeah. get barrels. <laughs> yeah. If you wanted to, if you wanted to increase your production, you got to, you got to yeah. give yourself a long lead time for that. Yeah, yeah, and and that is the case with, you know, all distilling is you know it's all about patience and lead time. We're we're playing with a, we're experimenting with a whole bunch of different products, and you know that's all kind of year to two years out all the time. You know, okay. well when it had, you have to age it for a minimum of three years by law. You you're by definition you're looking years out. Yeah, yeah, for all the ba barrel aged things. Yeah, right. so. Anything else, anything new that you guys are going to be doing or at any kind of a festival or anything that folks should be aware of? We're always, you know, experimenting and looking at, into new fermentables. We're actually right now uh, working with some agave to create an agave spirit. Um, that's We're kind of in the initial ferment tests right now, and it's been exciting sourcing all that and kind of getting into the new new fermentable is always kind of fun for for me as the distiller mm -hmm. <laughs> uh and then we also uh, we've been doing small release stuff uh, we did an aquavit uh, that we release um during the winter solstice kind of a norwegian caraway based spirit uh and that's been fun just doing those little releases having little release parties and having all the locals especially in the winter time the 
if the locals get their town back and they kind of can have a little bit of fun. So anything else? Uh, yeah, well, we're just um, loving that, you know, now that we're back in kind of a normal pattern, just inviting people back to the tasting room, which is now, I think, like for yourself, you haven't actually seen the new tasting room. It's actually a really nice cocktail bar with uh, just a really good ambiance. It's uh, You can sit there, drink your cocktail, sit on the porch and watch the ships come in and out and the fishing vessels. It's a pretty nice pretty nice spot yes i remember that's a you guys have a gorgeous location there i have to make an effort to get back down to haynes here in the next year or two yeah it's been a, it's been a while and i always enjoy my visit usually i try to crash the uh the uh, beer festival on memorial day weekend if you're gonna yeah, so you know, yeah that's the time to go yeah and this week this year was uh you know right back into that kind of same feel as years past it just really people are back in action well, hey, David, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. I appreciate it. Our listeners out there, if they're looking for some excellent spirits, they should definitely check yours out. I'll, I'll tell you a final story. I uh, I gave my in-laws a bottle of your bourbon for uh, their Christmas gift. About two weeks ago, I got a phone call from them asking me, where can they get a case? Yeah. So <laughs> I was like, well, that's going to be interesting. Where are they living? They live down in Washington State. We have a distributor, actually, in Washington. Yeah, you have a distributor in there. But, uh, you know, how many cases did you make this year or last year? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. So uh, Yeah, I the, doubt the bourbon is the most limited. Yeah. yeah, I doubt there's a case of bourbon sitting on the shelf at a distributor's place somewhere. You could maybe get a yeah. bottle or two, but uh, a case, that's, that's going to be problematic. But anyway, they give you a definite uh, two thumbs up on uh, oh, what you're great. producing there. They really love it. So anyway. That's great. Well, we love doing it. Well, hey, thanks again for talking to us, and you guys take care. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldat, and I'll be right back with our next segment. Don't forget to tune in on Sunday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on KDLL 91.9 FM to catch the show Pickled Beats, where I, your host, Josie Oliva, will be playing you a curated set of music inspired by an obscure subgenre or an oddly specific theme. I've got a bit of an update from a story I did over a year ago about the science of the hangover. If you've ever overindulged in the consumption of alcohol, it's likely that you've experienced the medical phenomenon known colloquially as the hangover. Of course, there are other terms used to describe hangovers. Here are just some I managed to find with a few minutes research online. Black dog, blue devils, bottle ache, bust head, carpenters in the forehead, crop sick, gallon distemper, hair ache, gym jams, cats and jammer, morning fog, wooden mouth, the zings. Given that there's such a widespread health phenomenon, it's perhaps a bit surprising that scientists still don't fully understand the causes of hangovers. They do, however, have a scientific name for them, vasalgia. It's far from clear why, after all traces of alcohol have been fully expelled from your body, you can still experience a load of awful symptoms, including headache, dizziness, fatigue, nausea, stomach problems, drowsiness, sweating, excessive thirst, and cognitive fuzziness. The simplest and most familiar explanation is that drinking alcohol causes dehydration, 
both because it acts as a diuretic, increasing urine production, and because people who are drinking heavily for multiple hours probably aren't drinking much water during that time period. Alcohol keeps your body from producing a hormone called vasopressin, which regulates the amount of water your kidneys can hold. But studies examining the link between dehydration and hangovers have turned up some surprising data. One, for instance, found no correlation between high levels of the hormones associated with dehydration and the severity of a hangover. It's most likely that dehydration accounts for some of the symptoms of a hangover, dizziness, lightheadedness, and thirst, but that there are other factors at work as well. Most scientists believe that a hangover is driven by alcohol interfering with your body's natural balance of chemicals in a more complex way. One hypothesis is that in order to process alcohol, your body must convert the enzyme NAD into an alternate form, NADH. With an excess buildup of NADH and insufficient quantities of NAD, the thinking goes, your cells are no longer capable of efficiently performing a number of metabolic activities, everything from absorbing glucose from the blood to regulating electrolyte levels. But this hypothesis, too, has been contradicted by data. In studies, people with severe hangovers weren't found to have lower levels of electrolytes or glucose in their blood. Currently, the most compelling theory is that hangovers result from a buildup of acetaldehyde, a toxic compound in the body. As the body processes alcohol, acetaldehyde is the very first byproduct, and it's estimated to be between 10 and 30 times as toxic as alcohol itself. In control studies, it's been found to cause symptoms such as sweating, skin flushing, nausea, and vomiting. These effects are compounded by something called glutamine rebound. As a depressant, alcohol dampens your body's production of a natural stimulant called glutamine. As soon as your drinking stops, your body tries to fix this by making a ton of the stuff. Since most folks do their serious drinking late at night, that means your brain is full of stimulants just as you're getting to sleep. This can make the grogginess of a hangover feel even worse. Hangovers could also be driven by the way alcohol messes with your immune system. Studies have found strong correlations between high levels of cytokines, molecules the immune system uses for signaling, and hangover symptoms. Normally, the body might use cytokines to trigger a fever of inflammatory response to battle an infection, but it seems that excessive alcohol consumption can also provoke cytokine release, leading to symptoms like muscle aches, fatigue, headache, or nausea, as well as cognitive effects like memory loss or irritation. Another interesting question is why do some people get hangovers more easily? Life, alas, isn't fair. Some people are extremely prone to hangovers, and some can drink with impunity. It seems that genetics are partly to blame. Some people, disproportionately those of East Asian descent, have a mutation in their gene for the enzyme alcohol dehydrogenase that makes it more effective in converting alcohol into the toxic acetaldehyde. Unfortunately, a significant part of this group also has a mutation in the gene for the enzyme that performs the next metabolic step, leading to a much slower conversion of acetaldehyde into acetic acid. As a result, excessive buildup of acetaldehyde can happen quite rapidly. This can cause an immediate alcohol flush reaction, but may also play a role in hangovers the day after drinking. We can also ask, why do some drinks cause hangovers more easily than others? Because the ultimate cause of a hangover is, after all, alcohol, 
Drinks that pack more alcohol into a smaller volume are naturally more likely to give you a hangover. Shots of liquor, in other words, are more dangerous than mixed drinks, beer, or wine. There are other factors that affect who experiences hangovers most readily. After having the same number of drinks, women are more likely to experience hangovers than men, though this simply seems to be a result of the fact that women generally have a lower body weight as well. If you control for body weight and compare a man and a woman with the same blood alcohol content, their chances of a hangover are similar. There's conflicting evidence over whether hangovers become more frequent with age. Some studies have suggested that adolescents are less likely to experience hangovers, but a recent large-scale survey showed the opposite, that even controlling for total alcohol consumption, drinkers over the age of 40 experience fewer and less severe symptoms. The authors noted that it's possible, though, that they consume the same amount of alcohol but with less intensity, spreading their drinks out instead of binging. Beyond that, though, some drinks happen to have higher levels of conjures, trace chemicals produced during fermentation that contribute to hangovers. Studies have shown that high-congener dark-colored liquors like bourbon and whiskey lead to more severe hangovers than lighter-colored or clear liquors like vodka. A Dutch study systematically looked at the conjure content and hangover risk of a variety of types of alcohol. It ranked various drink combinations by their conjure content versus the severity of the hangover produced. The drink with the least conjures, pure ethanol mixed with orange juice, produced the least severe hangover, followed in order by vodka, gin, white wine, whiskey, rum, red wine, and worst of all, brandy. One particular conjure called methanol, also known as wood alcohol, found in the highest levels in whiskey and red wine, has received a large amount of the blame due to studies showing that it can linger in the body after all other alcohol has been eliminated, perhaps accounting for the enduring effect of a hangover. This, incidentally, could explain the widely held belief that mixing different sorts of liquor can cause a hangover. A greater variety of conjures could well lead to a wider variety of effects. It can't, however, explain any beliefs about the order of these drinks. Despite the age-old adage, liquor but then beer, you're in the clear, beer then liquor, you've never been sicker. Now the $64,000 question. How can you prevent hangovers? The most effective solution is also the most obvious. Don't drink alcohol. Or, at the very least, don't drink to excess. If you're set on drinking a fair amount, though, there are certain things you can do to minimize your chance of a hangover and the severity of its symptoms, and they're all pretty intuitive. Don't drink quickly on an empty stomach. Drink slowly, either on a full stomach or while eating. Food doesn't literally absorb the alcohol, but having a full digestive tract slows down the rate at which your body absorbs the drug. Additionally, even though dehydration is only partly to blame, it still plays a role, so staying hydrated while drinking alcohol can help. Finally, try to stop drinking a couple of hours before going to bed. If your head hits the pillow after your body has already started recovering, you might avoid that problematic glutamine rebound and get a good night's sleep. It won't keep you from feeling hungover, but you'll feel a little more human than you would have otherwise. How can you cure a hangover? Is there a superfood slash drink slash ritual that can magically remove the after effects of a night spent binge drinking? Well, according to various local legends, you can cure a hangover by eating shrimp in Mexico, pickled herring, Germany, pickled plums, Japan, or drinking coffee, the U.S., strong green tea, China, 
or eating tripe soup. That's from Romania. A number of popular foods and beverages, like Bloody Marys, Eggs Benedict, and even Coca-Cola, were even developed specifically to cure hangovers. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that any of these homespun remedies do anything to help. There's also no evidence that the so-called hair of the dog technique, that is, drinking the morning after, has any effectiveness whatsoever. It might temporarily dull your senses, making you less aware of the hangover symptoms, but it does nothing to resolve the underlying physiological problems. And, of course, it can just lead to another hangover. Other drinkers vouch for a variety of seemingly scientific cures, vitamin B or caffeine, for instance, but studies have also failed to show that these provide any relief either. So what can you do? You can lessen some of the symptoms with well-known over-the-counter drugs, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories such as aspirin or ibuprofen can treat headaches and other pains, while you can take stomach relief medicines, say Tums or Pepto-Bismol, to reduce nausea. You should not take acetaminophen or Tylenol because when the liver is processing alcohol, it's especially susceptible to acetaminophen's toxic effects. You can eat food, drink water, and rest. Some research recommends eating eggs since they contain L-cytine, which helps break down any lingering acetaldehyde. Bananas may help by replenishing potassium lost in your dehydrated stupor, and fresh fruit juices or smoothies might give you sugar and a vitamin boost without upsetting your stomach. Drinking sports drinks to boost your electrolytes isn't a terrible idea, and pickle juice is a cheaper alternative. However, whatever you may choose to eat at the moment, Time is the only sure cure for the hangover. Howdy, folks. This is Murphy from the Veritas Variety Review. Check us out Saturdays, 7 to 9 p.m. every single week for good music, free high fives, and good vibes. Catch you then. For our last segment today, I'd like to talk about probably the most popular beer style in the world, Pilsner. Pilsner is a pale golden lager, originally from the Czech Republic. It revolutionized the brewing world when it first appeared, thanks to its seductive golden glow and crisp, refreshing taste. And thanks to an oversight, which meant that neither the name nor the recipe was patented, it was quickly imitated around the world. Today, for most beer drinkers, Pilsner is simply synonymous with lager. Imitation Pilsners today account for 95% of global beer volume, although most of these beers share little of the character of the original. Like Burton-on-Trent in the United Kingdom or Munich in Germany, the town of Pilsen in Bohemia is one of those rare towns where nature just happened to leave the perfect combination of ingredients lying around and phenomenally gifted brewers just happened to come along and find them. The Czechs refer to beer as Czech bread. They have always taken it incredibly seriously and drunk a great deal of it. But for most of beer's history, the ability to brew beers to a high and consistent standard lagged behind the demands for quality. In the mid-19th century, the citizens of Pilsen were becoming increasingly concerned with the quality of their beer, culminating in 1838 when an entire season's brew was solemnly poured out in front of the town hall. 
Something had to be done, and the citizens came together to build a new state-of-the-art brewery, the Burger Brow, or Citizens Brewery, uniting their skills and resources, and stealing as many ideas and resources as they could from neighboring Bavarians. Martin Selzer was commissioned to design and build the new brewery. He traveled extensively around Bavaria and met the man he knew he wanted as brewmaster, Joseph Grohl. At the time, brown Bavarian lager was the most celebrated beer style across Europe, and Grohl was hired to recreate a Bavarian-style lager at the new Citizens Brewery. He recruited Bavarian brewing assistants and barrel makers and brought Bavarian lager yeast with him. This lager yeast, scientific name Saccharomyces pastorianus, was a mutated version of ale yeast that liked the cold temperatures at which bacteria could not live, one that fermented without fruity esters and sank to the bottom of the fermenter rather than floating on the top. But what came out of the tanks in October 1842 was not a Bavarian brown lager. The citizens of Pilsen were handed a golden beverage with thick snow-white foam head. The drinkers, having tried its sharp, delicious taste, welcomed it with such cheers as had never been experienced in Pilsen before. Bavarian skill had met Czech ingredients. Moravian barley is sweet. Bohemian Saz hops have little bitterness but lots of aroma. And the very soft, sandstone-filtered Pilsen water allows these flavors to come through. Soon, Pilsner beer was being discussed excitedly throughout the Austro-Hungarian Empire and beyond. Perhaps as a result of their intoxicated delight, the burgers of Pilsen didn't get around to trademarking Pilsner beer until 1859, by which time there were many other beers on the market referring to themselves as Pilsner-style beers. Belatedly, in 1898, the Citizens Brewery registered the original Pilsner, Pilsner or Quell, as a trademark. The Citizens Brewery eventually changed its name to the Pilsner or Quell Brewery and still brews today. It would be incorrect to refer to Pilsner or Quell as the world's first golden beer, as the brewery often does, because color is a function of malt. English pale ale brewers had pioneered the use of pale malt decades previously, and Bavarian lager brewers freely admitted stealing the knowledge to create it from them. But Pilsner was certainly a new style of beer that had not been seen before, and its popularity spread rapidly. The birth of Pilsner lager coincided with the greatest period of scientific innovation in the history of brewing. Railways meant beer could be transported across great distances, and information traveled even faster. Refrigeration meant lagers no longer had to be conditioned in cool caves or deep cellars. And the works of Louis Pasteur and those influenced by him led to the isolation of single-strain yeast that could guarantee product consistency. This consistency became Pilsner's byword, and brands emerged in the late 19th century that still dominate the global beer market today. Pilsners are generally distinguished from other lager styles by their more assertive hop character. Within the style, there are two main geographic variants. Czech Pilsners, such as Pilsner or Quell, which tend to be darker in color but delicate in flavor, with floral, grassy aromas, while German pilsners, such as Bitburger or Warnsteiner, can be more bitter and earthy and use a variety of European noble hops as well as the beloved Czech Saz. 
The Netherlands and Belgium are also home to world-famous international Pilsner brands such as Heineken or Stella Artois, and these tend to be sweeter with considerably less hop character. Pilsners created the template for the industrial golden lager that dominates the global beer market, and as such, it is often misunderstood. Many so-called Pilsners have none of the character that truly defines the style, having had their maturation time cut and flavor-giving ingredients reduced to the point of extinction. Consequently, the first encounter with a true Pilsner can be a life-changing revelation to a drinker who has only previously experienced mass-produced pale imitations. I know mine was. If you're looking to experience a proper Pilsner firsthand, one of the key things to look for is freshness. As an example, canned Pilsner or Quell is often available at Fred Meyer. However, trust me when I tell you that after the rigors of traveling from the Czech Republic to Alaska, it's only a shadow of its former self. I've been fortunate enough to drink it in Prague, fresh from the brewery, and it is truly an amazing beer. However, if you can't swing a trip to the Czech Republic, I'd recommend trying some of our locally produced Pilsners instead. Midnight Sun Brewing Company cans its Wolfpack Pilsner, as does King Street Brewing. Other breweries in Alaska produce Pilsners from time to time as well. However, for my money, the best Pilsner in the state is the Czech Pilsner produced by Zach Henry at St. Elias in Soldatna. As one of his flagship brews, it's usually on tap and exquisitely fresh. One taste and you'll understand what a Pilsner is meant to be and realize just how this beer style managed to take the world by storm a century and a half ago. Well, that's it for this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I hope you've enjoyed our show. This month's beer quote is from the late, great George Carlin, since it's the end of July in Kenai. Give a man a fish and he will eat for a day. Teach him how to fish and he will sit in a boat and drink beer all day. Until next time, cheers. Beer on the last frontier. Beers of Alaska. Learn about them here. IPAs, ales and stouts, pilsners, porters too.